Life Church, I want to take a moment to introduce today's guest, Dr. Barry Corey. He is the president of Valley University and he assumed the role in 2007. As a native of Boston, Massachusetts, Dr. Corey previously served as a vice president for education at Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary in Boston. He is a graduate of Evangel University in Springfield, Missouri, and holds a PhD in education from Boston College. As a Fulbright scholar, he lived in Bangladesh, where he researched the educational programs for children of the landless poor. Dr. Corey is the author of the book, Love and Kindness. He and his wife, Paula, have three children and reside in Southern California. And today, he is here to share the message of that book, Love and Kindness. Would you give a great Life Church welcome to our guest, Dr. Barry Corey? Well, thank you. Thank you, Life Church. Thank you for this welcome. Thank you for the warm California weather um, that greeted me when I got here yesterday and today. Uh, and thank you, Aaron and Tammy. Um, what a, uh, an amazing uh, pastoral team you have here. And I've come to know Aaron as, uh, as a co-board member and convoy of hope for a long time. You know, I would come to this church if the commute wasn't so far. Um, this is an amazing community of Jesus followers and seekers and trying to figure out what is it like on the journey uh, with Christ. I come from Biola University, a school of about 6,000 students in Southern California. I'm a Boston native, as you just heard. Moved out there with our children, 8, 11, and 14, 11 years ago, my wife and I on this journey that we didn't know where it was going to take us, but it's been an incredible um, um, leg of this journey that we're on being at, at Biola. A few years ago, uh, William Bennett, the former Secretary of Education, wrote a book called Is College Worth It? Uh, and in it he said there are seven religious colleges that are really worth it and he listed Biola as one of the very first one. It was alphabetized, but I don't care. Um, I'll take it. <laughs> anyway, we can. So, um, you know, if you're out in California sometime, come by and, and, and visit us. It's a uh, uh, a wonderful Christ-centered community of 6,000 students, 1,000 faculty and staff just committed to be Jesus followers and investing in this rising generation. And what, a, what an exciting calling uh, that is. And I think about what C.S. Lewis said, how do we as little Christs, which is what these 6,000 students are, it's what you and I are, how do we live um, Christianly? in this world, and though C.S. Lewis died some time ago, the same day as John F. Kennedy died in 1963, um, I think that our, our culture has become much sharper and edgier in its uh, language, in its positioning, in its rancor, in its divisiveness, in its polarization, and even in its outrage. I think, like, how do we, as Jesus people, live in this increasingly complex and divisive society that we're in, and it seems to be getting better. I mean, not getting better, but getting worse and not better. And it's, and it's not just in media, it's not just in politics, it's not just in the university, but sometimes that divisiveness even manifests itself in the church. I thought if I had a bumper sticker that I'd slap on the back of my car, it would have four words, and it would be these, firm center, soft edges. Firm Center, this commitment to God's truth, like this is like what we believe in. And I love what Life Church says is one of its values is biblical authority that like we believe this is true. What the gospel calls us to, that's the firm center. But soft edges means the gospel calls us to lead, 
not by wrapping ourselves in razor wire and going after the other side, but lead with hospitality and kindness and listening and graciousness in a world that needs it more than ever. And I believe that our witness to the watching world is going to be measured by how we live out our soft edges. And I've been thinking a lot about God's kindness through his church. I, as you saw, wrote a, a book on kindness, not the book on kindness. And, and, and tucked through scripture are these wonderful examples of surprising kindness, maybe where you least expect it, take David, the king, right? And you know him. You, you think this, like this, this royalty, this psalmist, this, this guy that could, could write these epic poems and also play the harp and and slay Goliath with a stone, this athletic. He is the most interesting man in the world, right? The Dosecki's man of the Bible. I don't know if I can say that, but I just, I just did. Um, but oftentimes, when we think about David, we, we, we miss this one virtue. We think of David in terms of his public leadership, his oratory skills, his commanding presence, his, his ability to, to lead these, these, these commands of, of the military but the virtue of David that is so often overlooked is this tender and extraordinary kindness he had. And if you remember, before David was a king, there was another king named Saul. Saul actually didn't really like David so much. He hotly pursued him. He flung a spear at him. He sent armies out to capture David. Saul would rage with envy when that ditty was sung by the Israelites. Saul has slain his thousands, David his tens of thousands. And his jealousy and his ego and his insecurity and his thirst for power built this wall between David and Saul because he saw David as this rising leader and this paranoid king, passive aggressive in his personality. At one point he would praise David, the next moment he would try to kill him would see David as a threat to his kingdom. And ultimately, as you know the story, Saul was dethroned. And David was placed in power. And Saul died. Saul's son, David's friend, Jonathan, died. And if anybody should be afraid at that point with a new dynasty dominating Israel, it was this young boy with a long name called Mephibosheth. He was the son of Jonathan. He was the grandson of Saul, David's enemy. And he was the last survivor of Saul's family. So back in the day, when a new team gets into place in terms of, of the, the authority of, of a nation, at the least they would completely ignore the previous dynasty. But at the worst, they would wipe them out. And here we have this young man crippled in both feet, fearing for his life because he knows that his grandfather was out to kill David, and it was only appropriate that David would do the same for him. So listen to this tender story from 2 Samuel chapter 9, verses 3 through 11. And one day David asked, is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba, who was a steward of King Saul, answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, He is at the house of Machir. So David had him brought to him. And when Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, 
the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay honor to him. And David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied. David said, don't be afraid, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for this crippled young man and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. You get the story, right? The grandson of Saul, David's enemy, lame in both feet, living in fear that this new king would kill him. But remember, David was the one who wrote in that psalm, how precious is your loving kindness, O Lord. And he could not write about loving kindness without living it out too. And he lives out that kindness to the least likely when he asks, is there no one still left in the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Servants set out to find the young man. They find him in exile about 100 miles away. They bring him into the courts of David, and I don't know how he got there. If he limped in, if he came in on crutches, if he was carried in, but in this profoundly tender scene, this young man with palsied feet comes before the king standing there crookedly. And the king says to him, do not be afraid for you will always eat at my table. This young man had every reason to be afraid. His father was dead. His grandfather was the enemy of David. He was a disabled young man, and he had to live with a name like Mephibosheth, too. So that's like another, one more reason. <laughs> and, and it didn't make sense. So he bowed down before David. He said, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? And then in verse 11, David says, you eat at my table as if you were one of my own sons. And David had every right to invite to his table like the nobles, the dignitaries from other countries, like his immediate family. But he showed kindness to the least likely, this grandson of an enemy, a parentless young man who was palsied in both feet. And this kind king invited Mephibosheth to sit at his table, not just for one meal, but if you read the story, it's for every meal every day, month after month, year after year. And this is grace. This feeble, frail, fearful foe of David is receiving what he did not expect and what he did not deserve. And the only reason why he got it was because David was just living out the kindness that God had shown to him in God's own grace. And I just think that that's what it's all about. Grace received must be grace lived. What does it mean to live kindly? I thought a lot about that. It's, it's, it's easy to be kind, right, to those we get along with. It's easy to be kind to the barista who gets our latte right. It's, it's easy to be kind when, when, there's, when there's harmony in our family. 
It's easy to be kind when we're in a work environment where we get along with each other. It's easy to be kind in our little echo chambers. But kindness is a tougher road when there's tensions in our family, with our neighbors, our colleagues. Kindness is a lot more difficult with those we deeply disagree with. And I don't use the word kindness flippantly. It sounds like such a soft word, but there's a world of difference between the word kind and the word nice. Nice is timid. It's frail. It's empty, hollow. I don't know what it means. We need to stop telling our children to be nice and start telling them to be kind and tell them the difference between the two. Kindness is all over the Bible. Old Testament, New Testament, everywhere you find the word kindness. You won't find the word niceness or nice in the Bible anywhere. Because kindness is not, it's not the thing we do. It's the way we live. We don't just do kindness in some Nike-esque kind of way. We live kindness. We love kindness. It's what the prophet Micah was talking about in chapter 6 when he said, he has shown you, O followers of God, how to live. What do you live like when you're a follower of God? Well, you do justice and you love kindness. We say love mercy, but it actually means love kindness. And you walk humbly with your God. And you think of those three, do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with God. It seems like the kindness thing should be the easiest of the three, but kindness is very hard to show to those that we've ignored or condemned or judged or avoided or those people who get on our every last nerve. Being kind to those we like, it's easy, and it costs little. But Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, you have heard that it said, you love your neighbor and you hate your enemy, but I'm going to flip that, and I'm going to say you love your neighbor and you love your enemy. And he goes on to say you love your enemy and you pray for those who persecute you. So Jesus says there's two groups of people in our lives. Those we're in community with, those are our neighbors, and those we're not in community with, and he calls those your enemies. Those aren't necessarily people that we're combating with or, 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 or fighting against, but those we're not in our community. And he said, those who are not in your community, I'm telling you to do two things. You love them, and you pray for them. And he didn't say do one or the other, but sometimes that's exactly what we do. Sometimes we love or we don't pray, or sometimes we pray and we don't love. And when we have loveless prayer or prayerless love, we're missing half the picture. What does it mean to love those outside of your community? What does it mean to pray for those who make life really hard for you? The sad reality is that we do one or the other. We love our enemies without praying. So we might have like a great relationship with somebody outside of our community, but we don't long to see the gospel transform their lives. And this is grace without truth. Or sometimes we say, I'm going to pray for my enemy, and we pray for them, but we keep a distance, and there's no proximity, there's no relationship, and we're afraid to kind of cross that barrier to get into community with them, these people that are different than we are. And there you have truth without grace. And Jesus says, you don't get to pick which verb. You love and you pray for. And, and when, he, when he says this, he's just saying, you, you be like me. Because God's word says Jesus came full of grace and full of truth. 
Grace the soft edges, truth the firm center. It's not either or, and it's not half of each. It's fully both. And so we live these lives of kindness, and this is what kindness looks like. I'm all about like, like random acts of kindness. I mean, that's, we see the bumper stickers about random. And when and you do that, you, you, know, you buy a, a dessert for somebody at a different side of the restaurant because you're just going to randomly help them out with something. You, you pay it forward at Starbucks when you're going through the drive-thru. You take out your neighbor's trash, right? Random acts. You, you, you tell your friend that she has like spinach in her teeth because you want to be a kind. Whatever, whatever, your, whatever your kind act is. And I, and I like this kind thing. I as I told you, I'm at Bible University, and I, I, I'll stop students, and, and, and these, this gives me energy, and I have a conversation, and ask them how they're doing, give them a high five, fist bump, hug, whatever, and, and it wasn't long ago that someone showed me this Facebook posting after one of those encounters, said this, today, DBC president of Biola put his hand on my shoulder, looked me in the eyes, and asked me, how am I doing? He smelled like flowers, though. This dog's aroma made me feel like, dang, I'm a be okay. I'm struggling, but I can do it just saying. <laughs> what is he just saying? <laughs> I had no idea. Like, I need like someone to interpret. Like, smells like flowers. Okay, this dog's aroma. Like, which one? Is it the flower or the dog? What do I smell like? I don't know. So random acts are great. Keep doing your random acts. But don't stop there, because kindness is not a random act. Kindness is a radical life. It's countercultural. It's the way Jesus calls us to be. It means that we have to be, live out this profound sense of kindness, whether we're accepted or not, whether we're thanked or not, whether people appreciate it or not. It's this one-dimensional way of you just live it that way, uncompromisingly, sacrificially, day in and day out, and it's hard. I grew up seeing firsthand what like kindness looked like. My father, a small frame Pentecostal preacher from Canada, up in New England, we would, he was pastoring a church, and, and I, I'd watch the way in which he lived, and he, he could not contain this Christ-centered love within him, and he did it in the most awkward ways, right? So I'd, we'd be getting gas, and we'd be pull up in our Pontiac Bonneville. They don't make Pontiacs anymore. And, and, uh, and we'd go to the gas station. He'd get out, and he'd hug the Islamic gas station attendant and told him how much he appreciated him. And I'd slither down in the back seat. We'd go to the, the cobbler where he's getting his shoes fixed, and this old Armenian man would be standing there. My father said, can I pray for you? And this man would hold his frail hands across that polished stained counter, and they would clutch hands and pray, and I'd stand at the door. I'd be praying, too, like no one would come in and catch them in the act of, like, talking to God. And one time they had the audacity to go up to Reuben. Reuben was a Jewish furniture merchant in Worcester, Massachusetts, where my father would buy office furniture, and he just couldn't help himself. My father just went up to him, and he held Reuben's face in his hand, and he said, Reuben, I love you. Oh, why are you doing that? And I wanted to, like, crawl under the desk there, run out of the store. There were plenty of times I saw my father get rejected, being kind that way, people walking away, saying something offensive to him, giving him the stiff arm or the cold shoulder or the middle finger, whatever it might be, and, 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 and he didn't care. And I often felt for him the rejection that he did not seem to feel for himself. 
it was a few decades later. I was living in Bangladesh, kind of going through a little bit of a funk in my life, trying to figure things out. And, and, and when I was there, my father came through. I was in my late 20s, single, trying to kind of live the world as an adventure. And my father was on a walk for me one morning, and he was just there for a few days. And he said, there's this verse that Jesus says to his disciples, I can't seem to get it out of my mind. It's in Matthew chapter 10, right after he tells his disciples, you want to be my follower, you pick up your cross, and you come after me. My father said immediately after that, this is what Jesus said to his disciples. He said, whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. He said, I'm not fully sure what Jesus meant, but this I do know. He's saying this when like rickshaws are swirling around us and people are rummaging through dumpsters and beggars are on the street and crowded and poverty everywhere. I'm looking around seeing all this like this, this blight of humanity. And my father says, this I know that, that whoever God places in my path, how will they receive the grace of Christ? How will they receive the love of God unless I make myself receivable first? Jesus says to disciples, whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. And then it was like life flashed before my eyes, hugging the Islamic gas station attendant, praying with the cobbler, holding Reuben's face in his hand and telling him his loves him. And my father wasn't being weird. He was being receivable. And sometimes he wasn't received. And Jesus never said, you are going to be received. He always said, you make yourself receivable. Remember that Facebook posting of this dog's aroma, smells like flowers, though? It actually was a biblical, I don't know if the guy realized it or not, but, but Paul says this to us, that we are the aroma of Christ. To some, you're the smell of life. To others, you're the smell of death. To some, you'll be received. To others, you'll be rejected. But as Jesus followers, you've got to keep on smelling like him, giving off the aroma of Christ wherever you go, and it's not an option for us because kindness is on the short list of what Paul says are the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness. It's not a, an optional gift of the Spirit, right? It's an essential fruit of the Spirit. And we exhale kindness when we inhale what the Holy Spirit has done in us, breathing on us in a way that makes us more contagious with the love of Christ in us so that we also believe those words of Jesus, whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. What he said to his disciples then, he's saying to us today. As you know, I run a Christian university in Southern California I love the job, but it hasn't been without its challenges. I don't know a whole lot about Wisconsin politics. I know you have a, a governor named Scott Walker who's been on the news about collective bargaining and things like that, drives a Harley made down the street. Um, but in California, the political climate is it's, for Christian colleges, it's pretty, I've only lived in two states, right? I lived in Massachusetts and I lived in California. I skipped the easy ones in the middle, let me just say that. Um, but in California, it has not been an easy road to navigate a faith-based university in a state like this. And two years ago, Sacramento introduced a bill that was directly focused on Christian colleges like Biola because of certain sexual ethics that we have about how we live out our 
kind of sexual understanding what the Bible says on a place like Biola University. And they're basically saying that's a discriminatory way to be. So there are some bills that were introduced that were very harsh. And uh, one advanced, it actually passed, it lost some of its teeth at the end, which is a good thing. But we were told that there are harsher and more bills that were going to be coming our way. And behind these bills uh, was one lawmaker who was chair of the LGBT caucus in Sacramento. He wouldn't meet with anybody. He was dead set on correcting what he saw was a gross injustice live out in these colleges that had certain sexual ethics. And um, he was, I guess, in our minds, public enemy number one. And one day I was about to go to Sacramento and I got a text message from a friend. He said, if you're ever in Sacramento, he didn't know I was going the next day. He said, there's somebody that I want you to meet. And he mentioned this person's name, and it was Evan Lowe, who was the lawmaker that like, no one had met. And he had introduced these, one of the, the fiercer of the bills, and it was just, he was set on un, undoing us. I said, well, you know, he won't, he won't meet with me. He texted me back. He said, he's meeting with you tomorrow at 4.30. So I was, I was actually anxious all day. I had a bunch of meetings in Sacramento, went into um, Assemblymember Lowe's office at the end of the day. And uh, I, I know that with the cultural and political landscape changing in California, that, that it seemed like the gap was widening between the ways Christians lived and the way the state was going. So I was quite anxious. We had about 30 minutes together, had a rather pleasant conversation. I said, um, you know, Evan, would you ever come to Biola University to visit? He paused for a second. He said, okay, I'll come. Three months later, he, he came. He spent a chunk of the day on campus. Then he and I sat down that night over dinner for four hours. We've had many meals since that time. And we've gotten to know each other quite well. And instead of leading with our best arguments that night about why my perspective was right and why his perspective was wrong, I decided I'd start with civility and listening. And sometimes we need to start by talking across the table rather than shouting across the street. Sometimes you'll understand that breaking bread begins to break down barriers. Last year, he and I wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post headlined, we first battled over LGBT and religious rights. Here's how we became unlikely friends. And I'm, I'm telling you, like he and I know like there are deep, deep differences between us on issues about sexuality and marriage and other things. But I've also heard from him maybe how Biola can become a better place without compromising our convictions. And I've tried to discipline myself as a dimension of kindness on the virtue of listening, listening while wanting to learn rather than listening while waiting to respond. And there's a difference. And I don't know how this is all going to end up in the state. There are live issues happening right now. I've been texting him this week. And I'm not a prophet, so I can't tell you how it's going to spin out, spin out in the end. I'm not a, the son of a prophet. My father's a preacher. I work in a nonprofit uh, organization. So I don't know. That was actually a joke. So anyway. Um, but my hope is this. I say this to you here at Life Church, that people of faith will be known for loving our enemies and praying for those who make life difficult for us and loving demands proximity. My hope is that people of faith will open up their lives and even our dinner tables to some very unlikely dinner guests. My hope is that people like us will be known as gracious in our spirits, 
while firm in our convictions, known far more for what we are for than what we are against, because I believe the greatest influence lies ahead as you walk the way of Christ-shaped kindness in this increasingly divided and skeptical and fragmented society. And the, the, the truth is we've often used our hands less to serve and more to shake our fists. We've often used our mouths far more than we've used our ears. And many have been concerned about changing an opponent's mind. That's what they want to do rather than listening to what stirs her heart. And when we bypass or devalue relationships in favor of being right, what we're doing is we're cheapening the image of God and our fellow human being. And if the caustic course of our culture is to be reversed, it's people of faith like us that I believe need to lead the way. And we need to be less focused on battling our enemies and instead befriend them. And if we're always thinking it's us against them, we don't get very far. I was with a friend last week. He said, you don't beat an idea by beating a person. You beat an idea by beating an idea. We need to recognize that friendship among our deep disagreement is the foundation of a flourishing society. It's at the heart of evangelism and the gospel. It's kindness that opens the doors to transform hearts far more than some like, like blog or disembodied tweet ever could, and, and, and you know you're doing it here. At dinner with your pastor last night, I, I, I know the, the vision of this church, what you're doing with Convoy of Hope, what you're doing to, to reach the world, what you're doing to reach the neighborhood, what you're doing this coming Saturday, right, with Serve Day. Like, I, I, this church is filled with those who are like living out this life of kindness, and, and don't stop. Not only don't stop, like, like do it more radically than ever before. Who knows, there may come a day that the state of Wisconsin says, like, the kindest church in this state is Life Church, right there on the western side of Milwaukee, because you're living it that way. And it's awkward, and it's messy, and it's difficult at times, but it's the way in which Jesus has called us to live. And I believe Christians more than ever must be known for our radical kindness. It's Romans 2.4 after this little rant that Paul has about how often Christians are known to be judgmental people, he says in Romans 2, 4, it's God's kindness that leads to repentance. It's not our judgmental spirits that lead to repentance. It's not our ranting that leads to repentance, but it's God's kindness that leads to repentance. My friends, you cannot love well with a bullhorn. The Bible says we will be recognized not by our postings on Facebook or our outrage blogs about how bad secularism is, but you will be known by your fruit. And the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and kindness. And this Holy Spirit breathed kindness has more power than you can even begin to imagine. It can break down these seemingly impenetrable walls. It is at the heart of racial reconciliation. It can restore relationships long thought unsalvageable. It can empower servant leaders to break stalemates. It can bring nations together, and it can lead people to Jesus. That's why we must live radically this way. We don't live the life of kindness in order to be thanked. We live the life of kindness in order to be obedient 
A.J. Gordon, the great 19th century Boston preacher, said it this way, our task is not to bring all the world to Christ. Our task is to bring Christ to all the world. And that means kindness calls us off of our blogs and off of our soapboxes and calls us into the cities and into the neighborhoods and into the schools and into the workplaces, living that life of profound kindness. Sometimes our kindness will be accepted. Sometimes our kindness will be rejected. But I can guarantee you this, your kindness will never be forgotten because it plants a seed in someone's heart that I believe one day will germinate, even though it's suppressed for a long time, long after you might be gone. So don't feel that because you weren't appreciated for the kindness that you expressed, that you're gonna just say, okay, I tried it, I'm gonna give up. Whoever receives you receives me, Jesus said, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. We make ourselves receivable even though sometimes we are not received. Maybe someone can come up here and start playing something spiritual. I'm gonna land this plane right now. (laughs) This kindness thing I'm talking about is not just a public virtue. It's at the heart of the gospel. The kindness moment in history was the cross. We often think of the cross as rugged and bloody and dark, but it is the place where God's kindness in the most profound moment was expressed when he did something for us that we could not do for ourselves. And in that sense, we are like Mephibosheth. We stand there crippled before the king, and we feel like we have nothing to offer, and we should be condemned, and instead of being condemned, He says, you come and you eat at my table and I'm opening up for you every day, year after year. This is God's grace. God's grace means there's nothing that you can do to make him love you more. There's nothing that you can do to make him love you less. And it happens because of the cross, which is eternally and ultimately grace's most profound moment. It's a place where we were received despite our past and our baggage and our shortcomings and our fears. And we are the ones who hear the words of the king to come as we are as daughters and sons to sit at the table as undeserving as we might be. And I don't know, maybe that's what you need to hear today. Maybe you feel like, you know, like me? And Christ the king is saying, you just come. You put your feet under my table. That's why we have communion, table where you take the bread and you take the cup and you remember what Christ has done for you in that ultimate act of kindness. And for those of you who are among the redeemed, who know what it's like to be at that table, we get up from that table and we walk into a world that needs us more than ever before, not to be agents of division, but agents of hope and reconciliation and kindness that reflect the love of Christ. So therefore, as God's chosen people redeemed by his grace, God's word exhorts us, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with kindness. Father, may your word stir hearts today 
not just to get it, but to live it. May we not only grasp the truths that you have for us, but may we be grasped by them and go from here living out the love of Christ. For anyone here who hasn't experienced that love, that grace that is free and eternal, I pray that maybe even today they'll say, Jesus, I want to come to the table like Mephibosheth of old, broken and hobbling and weak and weary and receive that grace, that amazing grace that we pray all this in Jesus' name.